It has been 300 days since Russian forces invaded Ukraine. And there's a scene that has played out so many times as Ukrainians have left in search of safety. Our producer, Renny Svernovsky, has been listening to tape shared with us by volunteers who've been helping to resettle refugees. One conversation I heard was between a volunteer and a refugee who arrived in Poland. She'd been traveling with her large family, and they were looking for a place to stay. The woman's name is Marta. The volunteer didn't get her last name. Here she's saying, God, I've lost track of my thoughts. And the volunteer tells her it's okay and asks where Marta had come from. Marta and her family had come from Tarezk, a town in eastern Ukraine that had been heavily shelled. She says they just wanted to get to a place where they could calm down and finally be safe. They wound up at a train station in a Polish city. There was a refugee shelter nearby set up in an old grocery store building. But it was closed for cleaning, so they were left to sleep at the station. And I saw photos of them, this family of 11, including kids, sleeping on the floor on flattened cardboard boxes with nowhere to go. Back in March, leaders of European Union countries pledged to give immediate aid to those displaced by the war. We have activated the so-called Temporary Protection Directive for the very first time in the history of the European Union. This gives, gives all Ukrainian immediately residency rights. We're also working to ensure that other supports are available to people arriving here, including access to health, social care, services, and education. But as 2022 comes to an end, many EU countries are struggling to fulfill those commitments, which makes the situation for these refugees more challenging. And now, with winter setting in, the stakes are even higher. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, December 21st. And as the war drags into winter, President Volodymyr Zelensky is meeting with President Biden in Congress, asking for more help. Today, we're going to hear about how things have unfolded for refugees in one city in Poland and what we can learn from the situation there. European countries have been much more welcoming to refugees of this war than in past crises. But there are still so many challenges. For several months now, my colleague Rennie, who you just heard, has been digging into this with one of our reporters, Rick Nowak. You'll hear from him in just a bit. But first, here's Rennie again. A few months ago, I heard about this old grocery store in southeastern Poland that had been converted into an aid center for people fleeing the war in Ukraine. The center was in Pshemysh, which is this small city about 60 miles from Lviv. And a lot of refugees were ending up there because, just by virtue of where it is, it's sort of the first stop over the border for many people trying to leave Ukraine. One of the people who had to make a journey like this was Andrzej Kulakov. He and his family had been living in Kiev, and then, when the war began, went to Poland, to Pshemysh. He told me, I had to leave Ukraine because it was impossible for us to stay there. 
ну, не было возможности продолжать работать, само собой, снимать квартиру. No вот я больше как водитель, я развожу людей. Once his family got to Pshemish, Andrei immediately got to work helping other refugees entering the border town. He had this minibus, painted yellow and blue, the colors of the Ukrainian flag, and he'd pick people up at the border crossing if they'd walk to it, he'd pick people up from the train station, and he'd take them to the aid center run out of the old grocery store, the Tesco. Think of it as like a European Walmart. There, volunteers who'd come in from all over the world would take them in. In March, the European Union promised Ukrainian refugees they were welcome to come and take refuge in their countries. They did that using the EU's Temporary Protection Directive. This directive was something that had been on the books, but never used until this war. And it granted temporary asylum to Ukrainian refugees, a promise they could live, work, and send their kids to school in whatever EU country they ended up in, at least temporarily. This was a big deal, but... Activating this directive doesn't necessarily tell EU member states what to do or how they should handle the influx of people. That's where the center in Pshemish came in. The volunteers at the Tesco took it upon themselves to meet people at the border, to help people reach the places where they could access these services, and to try to make that passage easier. Which was hard to do. It was sort of a slapdash operation. The volunteers were mostly independent, they didn't come from one specific organization, and no one group was in charge. They were all just there to help. At the start, it was just sort of, you know, it's, this is an emergency center that's been set up, so it's going to take a while to get used to how to run it. That's Sarah Casey from North Wales. She came to Pshemish as a volunteer right at the start of the war. But it ran and it provided the service it needed to for the people that it needed to when it needed to. But there were challenges. For example, there was a local mandate that the Tesco had to be a transit center, which meant that it wasn't supposed to house people for more than a couple of days. But volunteers were, in some cases, letting people stay longer. They told me they didn't want to toss people out when they were shell-shocked and tired, or pressure people to rush through deciding where they would go next. People arrive in all different states of health. That's Jay Rivera, another volunteer at the center. He came all the way from Pennsylvania to help. Many of them, like at the time, were traveling for days. And by days, I mean like eight days to get to the center. And many of them hadn't eaten in quite a few days. And it was horrific. He told me he still loses sleep over a conversation he had with a woman who arrived at the Tesco. The woman asked us to decide where she should go. And I was, I was confused. And it was her and her four-year-old daughter. And she, the woman then told us that she had lost everything. Her home was gone. Her husband was killed and her parents were killed. And so she had nothing. And she asked us to decide for her where her and her daughter should start their new life because she didn't want to make the choice because she didn't want to make the wrong choice.
The Tesco also didn't have a good system for protecting the personal information of refugees they registered. And they didn't have a good system for vetting volunteers, which meant the refugees could be vulnerable to bad actors. Despite these challenges, the facility was helping people. It was providing a place for refugees to go. The mayor's office told me the center was processing more than 1,300 people a day in the early months of the war. But to be able to serve them, to find them more permanent accommodation further into Western Europe, to give them appropriate medical treatment and to keep them safe, the center needed more support. In August, the Polish Red Cross took over control of the Tesco. In a written statement, the regional director, Maciej Morczak, said that the goal of the takeover was to smooth out operations at the center and to, quote, increase the participation of an organization with experience delivering humanitarian aid in the management. And at first, volunteers told me they were relieved. Here's Zara again. When we heard that the Red Cross were going to be taking control of the center, we thought, okay, this is good. But they told me the takeover didn't end up going how they'd hoped it would. For instance, pretty soon after, the Red Cross made plans to close everything down for cleaning, which everyone told me was definitely necessary. But for the Red Cross, that meant kicking everyone out, at least temporarily. The regional director of the Polish Red Cross told us, via a translator, that his team gave plenty of warning. So um, the director says that actually the date was clearly communicated, the date of the closure of the facility. And he says it was communicated on the City Hall website, on Facebook, and also on-site there were coordinators. So it was on the sort of loudspeaker, and then there were coordinators going around with megaphones, speaking in different languages, um, clearly stating when the site would be closed. So this was a specific date, which was stuck to, a, a date and an hour, in fact. But volunteers at the center say the process was chaotic and that they didn't know how to answer refugees' basic questions, like where they'd be sent to stay instead. Jay, the volunteer we heard from earlier, actually quit over all this. In the end, all of the refugees were removed from the Tesco. Some were sent to other cities. Others ended up sleeping at the train station. But while this was happening, there were also people who were still arriving in Pshemish, hoping to find a moment to rest. People like Marta, who we heard from earlier. The center reopened about a week after it closed in mid-August. But it reopened with new rules. It now has a maximum capacity of 200 people. Remember, it once housed up to 1,300 people at a time. It'll only allow in refugees who show up within 24 hours of crossing the border. There are document restrictions. Refugees have to have a specific kind of passport to enter. And they're required to leave after 48 hours. These changes were made back in the fall. Since then, of course, it's gotten colder. And repeated Russian attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure has cut off much of the country from electricity and heat. Now, border countries like Poland are bracing for another surge of refugees. The Red Cross says it can be prepared to handle up to 500 refugees at the Tesco. They can stay there temporarily, before heading further into Western Europe. And that was producer Renny Spranovsky. After the break, I talk with Paris correspondent Rick Nowak about how refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine have fared across Europe. We'll be right back.
so, Rick, we heard from producer Renny Svernovsky about the experiences of some refugees at a transit center in Pshemish, this first stop for many of the people fleeing Ukraine. So is there anything that you can tell us about what the experiences of Ukrainian refugees have been in other parts of Europe? Well, the experience of refugees in Przemysl certainly hasn't been very different from what we've heard from other border crossings, from other towns that are sort of on the way of uh, the main refugee routes um, that we've heard from over the past months. Um, A lot of refugees have struggled to kind of get into the labor markets, uh, into the countries they were sent to or the countries they chose to go to. A lot of them have struggled to find language courses. Um, So for a lot of them, it has been a challenging experience, even though a lot of them stressed that the people they encountered on the way very often were extremely friendly, extremely supportive. And when we talk about these struggles, like, how many people are we talking about here? How many refugees have fled and applied for temporary protection in the EU? Well, so far, about 4.7 million Ukrainian refugees have applied for temporary protection in the EU. That's twice as many refugees as uh, the people who arrived uh, during the 2015-2016 influx, uh, when a lot of Syrian refugees came to the EU. So that sort of shows you the scale uh, of the challenge that European Union countries have dealt with over the last year and over the last months. So after refugees have crossed these borders out of Ukraine and and gone through similar centers to what we heard just described, where where do they go after that? Like, what was that like for them? Well, a lot of them have stayed or have tried to stay in um, countries that were very close to the border with Ukraine, countries like Poland, um, also the Czech Republic, Hungary, so that they could potentially go back uh, quite quickly or at least have quite a sizable uh, community of of refugees uh, who could help, but did realize quite soon that a lot of the the systems in place there to to help them were overburdened um, and in some cases didn't exist. Um, those are places that weren't used to hosting refugees in large numbers uh, before this crisis and they lacked experience in in dealing with such an influx. They lacked mechanisms in place to quickly scale up support when it comes to housing, when it comes to education. And countries like Germany that have taken in a lot more refugees in the past, um, you really could see a difference there in in the way they were able to quickly organize and offer support that in many ways was, was more organized, was more deliberate. But instead of continuing to to increase support over the last few months, what we've actually seen in some places has been a withdrawal of existing mechanisms, of existing benefits and help. So tell me what that's actually looked like for refugees, like their experiences of having this offer for help and where it's worked and where it hasn't worked. Well, the experiences have really differed, and often it's come down to where people decided to go or where they were sent to. Um, for example, we spoke to one refugee, Ala Borodan, a 47-year-old educator who arrived in Germany in early March. And she was really able to quickly get a job teaching and offering speech therapy to Ukrainian children at a school. 
That was possible because the job didn't require her to speak German. And uh, that's what a lot of the NGOs we spoke to said. You know, this is sort of the typical storyline of someone who has been able to, to find a job. A lot of them are working in the crisis response to this war, to the influx of refugees itself. Um, they're not necessarily working in sectors that are completely unrelated. Um, other refugees have found it more difficult to find their place and to find a job. Um, when I went to um, the southern French city of Marseille earlier this year to write about um, a ferry that had been turned into a refugee accommodation center for 800 people, I met um, Olga. Мне дали отдельную каюту, она была небольшая, но наконец-то я имела single room. Я была просто счастлива. She seemed really upbeat at the time. Uh, she um, had just found a job at a, at a beach uh, club nearby, um, and and she was very optimistic about her future. But then when I checked back in with her a few weeks later, um, she said that she'd lost that job because of an injury that she blames on, you know, the psychological toll that the, the war has taken on her. До того, как я приехала во Францию, ну, у меня не было таких проблем. Возможно, это было связано с тем, что, как доктор мне объяснил, что я похудела очень, и мышечный корсет не удерживал э, кости. Ну, то есть, все равно война виновата, я так считаю. Then she was uh, sort of pressured to move to um, another town, a smaller town called Lourdes, um, where she struggled to find a new job. Um, she struggled to find access to, to a language class. So she says um, the language barrier has really become a problem for her. In Marseille, which is the second biggest city uh, in France, you know, she could speak Russian or English to people. Uh, she was part of a community. But in this smaller town in Lourdes, um, that's not been the case. And what are some of the challenges that European countries are facing that have been making it harder for them to help? Well, the war in Ukraine coincided with a number of challenges that um, predated this war in Europe. A lot of capital cities, a lot of uh, towns had uh, tense housing markets. A lot of them were already struggling to provide um, accommodation and, and enough housing. Um, they were already seeing rising energy prices as well. And, and the war in Ukraine certainly has made those problems worse and more challenging because, you know, in capital cities like Prague, um, within a few weeks, the population, according to some estimates, increased by as much as 7%. Uh, and that is quite a lot for one town to shoulder. Uh, so there are specific places that have seen a lot more pressure, a lot more challenges than, than others. And um, Prague is, for example, also one of the cities where we've seen some of the biggest anti-Ukrainian protests over the past few months. So some of the refugees we, we spoke to there, they said sentiments were extremely welcoming at the, at the beginning of this crisis, but there really has been a shift, especially for people who are only now arriving or who only now arrived over the past over the past months, um, they've said their children have really encountered discrimination, um, that they've struggled to find housing, they feel discriminated against on, on the housing uh, market, and the government has taken quite a few steps to increase that feeling of no longer being welcomed to the same extent. Uh, 
The Czech government has taken steps to remove free health insurance for Ukrainian refugees. They've also taken steps to remove other benefits they received, such as uh, free public transportation. Hearing that, I, I think, is surprising to me, or at least would have been surprising to me, six or nine months ago, right? Like, we had such a public kind of outpouring of support for Ukraine, that everyone was with Ukraine and with Ukrainians against Russia. And to hear that the countries that these people fled to actually found themselves in situations where they're like, we actually don't really want these people here. Um, That's just surprising. It is surprising. Um, Countries like Poland, countries like the Czech Republic, um, very much had resisted taking in refugees in 2015, 2016. Um, And and they were among the ones that really showed the most support in the very early months and and weeks of this war, who hosted Ukrainians at their homes. Um, A lot of this was due to really people rallying to host Ukrainian refugees, Um, not necessarily the governments taking major action, but people themselves uh, really trying to help. That certainly is still the case in, in to some extent, but some of that support and some of that enthusiasm to help has understandably um, faded. A lot of a lot of people are increasingly either believe that the government should step in to do more to uh, shoulder this burden, or they believe that it's now time for for Ukrainian refugees to take initiative, to go job hunting, to to help mitigate sort of the the uh, the burden and to help uh, soften, I guess, also the blow to countries' economies that have already, you know, faced a number of challenges when it comes to inflation, when it comes to rising energy prices. Yeah, because I I feel like I have this question of why has it been that public sentiment about Ukrainian refugees has been turning in some of these countries? And I wonder if it's just like regular xenophobia that we've seen in past refugee crises, or if there are specific things that are happening right now that are making people feel like, okay, having these Ukrainians in my in my community is not helping me? Well, that's a good question. I think there is an effort um, by Russia to feel some of those sentiments. Um, disinformation campaigns on messaging apps like Telegram that, that directly try to stoke anger against Ukrainian refugees. Um, there have been quite a lot of them in the Czech Republic, but also increasingly in, in countries like Germany. Um, it's, it's unclear to what extent those disinformation campaigns really can succeed. Um, there seems to be still quite a lot of support um, for, for hosting refugees in in a lot of European countries. Um, but I think there is a sentiment of, of fatigue and exhaustion among a lot of the people who stepped up to help at the very beginning um, that shouldn't necessarily be conflated with um, with racism or, or anti-Ukrainian sentiments. I would say there is one group of refugees from Ukraine that has really had an experience that's not comparable to the broader experience. And that's um, Roma refugees. Roma um, are an ethnic minority uh, group in in Europe. Um, We spoke to two women, uh, Lilia and Ola, in their 40s and 60s, who arrived in Prague in April. And and really have faced a series of challenges uh, ever since they arrived. So the, the uh, Czech Republic was not ready for accepting uh, Roma refugees, and segregation started already at the border. Then the Roma people had to stay and wait, 
and um, only white uh, Ukrainians were allowed to go into the bus. When they came to Prague, they were put into a dorm that was full of bugs. When they complained, uh, officials inspected the facility. But they asked them to take off their clothes right in front of them, supposedly to wash and disinfect them. But these clothes were never returned, uh, the women told us. They say this whole incident left them humiliated and discouraged. It's quite symptomatic of the experiences of quite a lot of Roma Ukrainian refugees. Um, NGO workers we spoke to said that those aren't isolated cases. They believe there is discrimination against Roma Ukrainian refugees on quite a, quite a significant level. And to be clear, I mean, discrimination against Ukrainian Roma people in Europe is not new, right? Like, there's a long history of that. But it does seem like this war either exacerbated that or intensified it or at least reignited those feelings. No, you're absolutely right. This is not this is not new. Um, Roma um, communities have long been discriminated in in many parts of Europe. What is new, however, is is this war and the fact that they should have the same rights, the same access to housing and and schooling, to education than any other refugees. Um, but it doesn't seem like that is in fact the case. And for the Ukrainians that you talk to, what do they have to say about the fact that their experience of seeking refuge in the EU was different from either what they expected or different from what the EU itself said at the beginning of this war, of how they were going to be welcoming refugees like them? I think a lot of refugees are making a distinction between what the government of the country they're currently in has done and what the people, the sort of people they experience around them are doing to to help. A lot of them have been very grateful, very optimistic about sort of the um, citizen level support they've received uh, about sort of the public attitudes they say they feel welcomed in general. But at the same time, they're also acknowledging that there have been shortcomings. Um, of course, a lot of them, they're all aware that, that hosting 4.7 million people within a few months, that is a big challenge. But I think quite a lot of them have been surprised by some of the challenges they faced, the inability to find any language course, even though that's sort of the first requirement to find a job, uh, which is what the governments here are expecting people to do. Um, and, and I think quite a lot of them have been slightly disappointed by, by certain aspects of their, of their experience. I'm curious what EU countries have said in response to these criticisms that they haven't done enough or that they haven't planned enough um, or haven't been welcoming enough for Ukrainian refugees. Um, and I think, in fairness, it's probably important to remember that, you know, nobody expected this war to happen and this has taken the whole world by surprise. And so it's maybe understandable that they don't have a great plan for how to take care of these refugees going forward. 
And I think that's exactly how a lot of European countries have responded. Um, they've pointed to the fact that this is an unprecedented challenge in many ways, that they've never before invoked this uh, protection directive, um, and that they've really tried their best to live up to this historic challenge. And it's clear that there has been a lot more willingness than in 2015, 2016, even to an extent that some NGOs um, say that Ukrainian refugees have been treated much better than um, non-European refugees who arrived in Europe in the past and who are still arriving in Europe and do not have the same level of protection or the same level of rights. So then what does the future look like for many of these Ukrainian refugees in the EU, especially as we are at a point now where it doesn't really seem like there is an end in sight for this war? Well, it really depends on how quickly countries can address their, the problems they've faced. There are still many countries that say that their centers, their housing is above capacity, including Ireland, the Czech Republic, and others. Um, they're, in fact, you know, still launching urgent appeals for people to come forward and open up their properties, for example, still relying on the same level of kind of public support. Um, other countries or cities are saying they've run out of money, especially, you know, with the prospect of of a recession um, in Europe, uh, that they're unable to find the necessary resources to, to support the same number of refugees in, in their cities, in their countries. So one crucial factor, among many others, will be labor market integration in the coming months. How quickly will Ukrainian refugees be able to overcome those language barriers, and how quickly will they become part of the communities they move to? Yeah, Rick, honestly, as you're saying this, you're basically talking about more problems and more questions rather than real solutions. And I wonder, I mean, do you get the sense that the EU is not really grappling with a long-term solution of what it looks like for these people years to come in a world where this war drags on? Well, it seems like a lot of European countries didn't anticipate this crisis to still be as big of a challenge now than it is. Um, quite a few were hoping that this would somehow fade away quicker, that this wouldn't be a sort of permanent crisis. Um, and the question now is whether they can transition from this immediate uh, crisis response into a more longer-term support mechanism, whether they, they're willing to even do that. But then at the same time as this is happening, a lot of NGO workers are preparing for another wave of Ukrainian refugees into Europe over this winter, um, especially now with Russia attacking Ukrainian infrastructure. They anticipate people to continue coming to Europe in perhaps greater numbers than we've seen this summer and, and this fall. Um, and European countries will need to figure out what they're going to do about it. Rick, thank you so much. Thank you. Rick Nowak is a correspondent for The Post based in Paris. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is produced by Renny Svernovsky. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins and Maggie Penman. Meg Kelly contributed reporting. Annabelle Chapman and Darima Batarova helped with translations. 
Thanks to Rebecca Rossman, Marisa Bellack, David Herzenhorn, Irina Kogel, Lexi Diao, Renita Jablonski, and Alana Gordon. If you value the reporting you hear on this podcast, subscribe to The Washington Post. Right now, you can save over 70% on a new premium subscription to The Post. And that new premium subscription comes with a bonus subscription to share. You can find this deal at WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.